With cybersecurity becoming more complex and the threats even more dangerous, knowing what to do to protect yourself can seem like an impossible task. That is until now. Welcome to the Cyberbytes Podcast, where we help you filter through the noise one bite at a time. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Cyber Bites program. My name is Nick Sturgeon. I am your host. Welcome to this Cyber Bites chat episode. Really excited about this conversation. A brand new guest with me. And I, I'm just really stoked because we spend a lot of time mainly focused on cybersecurity, but there is another complete side to this conversation, and that is privacy. And with me today, I'm very, very happy to have on and introduce to you guys is James Siranowski. Uh, hopefully, I got your last name uh, somewhat <laughs> close, James, on the pronunciation. It's Siranowski, but that's totally <laughs> fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, it, just a little bit of a background. Lindsay Marie, obviously, for those of you listeners, know that Lindsay is a friend of the show uh, and she introduced James and I through email because uh, of what James and his organization is working on out in Utah. But we'll get to a little bit more of that here into the conversation. But James is with the Libertas Institute and he is a policy analyst and it says tech and innovation. Is that kind of what you're focused on primarily uh, at your role there? Yeah, no. Uh, basically, uh, my, my title is the policy analyst, and I specialize on issues surrounding technology and innovation. And the nice thing about that job for me, at least, is that the topics that I get to engage on are, are kind of varying day by day. Sometimes I'll be writing about price gouging sometimes and how that relates to Amazon and third party versus first party listings on their website. It can go and range over to cybersecurity issues and how you know, the government might be storing data on their agency level uh, servers. There's, there's a whole host of great issues that I get to go and focus on. So I really do enjoy what I get to do here. Nice. So how long have you been in your current role? And kind of just for some background, you know, where did you come from? And, you know, just kind of lead up to how you got to sure. the Libertas Institute. Yeah. So I was uh, born and raised in New Jersey and New York. And, uh, when I was going through that area, that that's a very unique environment to grow up in being in New York and then not necessarily lining up with the philosophical kind of background that New York has. But when I was in college, I was fortunate enough to go and study some economics with one of my favorite professors, uh, Shruti Rajagopalan. And she really turned me on to economics and I did really well there and it afforded me a full ride at George Mason University to go and continue my education to get a master's degree in economics. And one of the questions they asked me when I was applying for the program is what, what kinds of policy areas do you think you want to go and focus on when you go into this program? And it was a question that I asked myself. I was like, well, if I'm going to be engaging in a policy discussion for the next 30, 40 years, where do I, where do I see this going? Right. And I, I wrote back with the answer of, well, I think technology is going to be an increasingly prevalent topic that we're going to need to be able to talk about. So I got to go and do some, uh, worked there with the Mercatus Center and worked with the likes of Adam Thier and and some really bright minds, Eli Dorado, and it was it was great. And 
I graduated, did some work with another nonprofit for a little bit. And then this opportunity opened up with the Libertas Institute. And I, I was like, I have to go and do this because this is my calling. I love technology policy. I love being able to use the economic way of thinking to explain how we can get through some of these problems that technology presents with us. So that's, that's a little bit about me. And, and like I said, it's been a blast ever since I've gotten to come here and work on these tech issues. Yeah. And, and so just a little bit of history of this show. So this is actually the second iteration of my podcast. Uh, the first iteration, I really did focus on the policy, politic issues surrounding cybersecurity. It, and it's still part of the show. I think it's just in the DNA. I think when you talk about cybersecurity and how it's implemented from a business standpoint or in our personal lives, you can't get away from the government policies. Mm-hmm. I'm also a huge constitutional conservative. It just by a way of political background, very strongly, hey, this is, as a way that we should be living our lives and in interaction with our government is the Constitution. That is the framework. Those are the ground rules, and we should stick to those. Uh, but the that intersection, you know, I look at it from a, a technical piece, and I've had very technical jobs coming through spend a number of years in, in state government. So I understand how, you know, the inner workings of, of state government, both from policy, law enforcement, and saw some things I didn't like. And, you know, finally left state government. I, whew, I can finally talk about these things that I don't like without getting in trouble. Um, and, you know, at, at least without risking too much of, you know, my livelihood um, and actually make it part of my livelihood. Uh, so I, I think your background in this show really aligns well. And after, you know, Lindsay made, brought this potential, you know, conversation up, I'm like, yeah, I've got to do it. I mean, I just, and, and, I, and getting into this, the, the, one of the main things I want to talk to you about this privacy project that you guys have going on, but yeah, I think there, there's just so much. I mean, the reason why cybersecurity exists is to protect information. Uh, I mean, that it's simply, it's not any other real goals other than to protect information, whether it's your personal information, it's the, the crown jewels, if you will, and that the, you know, 23 spices or, you know, whatever, you know, a, a company considers important to them. The things that we do to protect that technology and the information embedded in that technology is cybersecurity. I mean, confidentiality, integrity, and availability to get a little bit geeky. <laughs> but so when we in the cybersecurity field, privacy is almost a bit of a, a four-letter word because, oh, yeah, privacy, because it usually means government regulation. And I think that's <laughs> where the that four-letter word comes in. It's like, because working with the technologies and the tools, that's the fun stuff. But dealing with the government regulators and, and all that stuff, that, yeah, it gets very cumbersome and it creates a lot of unnecessary work. But so you can't have this, the, the security side of cybersecurity without talking about privacy. And, and that's why I'm really excited that you're on so we can get that expertise and talk about why you know, the, the privacy aspects of the technology that we're using and, and even with what companies like Google and Facebook are doing 
with our information and how that all plays together. And, and so I'm really, really excited. So sorry for taking up a, a little bit of time there. So, so you guys are based out West as I'm here in the Midwest, but I think before we get into the, the, this privacy project, tell us a little bit about your organization and, and what it was found for and what you're trying to, to solve. Yeah. So the Libertas Institute is a nonprofit think tank based out of here in Utah. Um, that was formed by Connor Boyack because he he saw that there was a system that was going on where the only way that you could really go and make effective change was if you were trying to go and play a part in the in the process of of getting things taken care of because there's a lot of times where you'll go and you'll see research being done, white papers getting put out, all these virtue signals of of things that we care about policy wise getting done, but uh, that's not necessarily very effective when you're looking at how do you go and get the changes that we want to go and see done done so connor formed the libertas institute in part to go and try to institute effective change in utah and what we've been trying to do now is take a lot of the successes that we've gotten in utah whether that's on issues such as free-range parenting or school choice or these technology issues and implement them in utah and then try to go and scale them out to other states where we feel like if we can go and build that up we can have a more prosperous society in general. So basically a lot of what we do is we just try to go and do that aspect because there's a lot of validity in doing research as an academic economist myself. That's what I always prided myself on doing was doing rigorous thought and research on topics. But at the same time, you've got to be able to take that stuff that's being constructed in the ivory tower and convey it in a way that you know normal people can understand, a legislator can understand because there's some really wonky things, especially in tech policy that that an average person sometimes it might just go right over their head. So that's always something that we're very cognizant of is how do we go and, you know, communicate these complex ideas with people. Great overview. Uh, I think the, the mission of what you guys are doing is, is awesome. I, I think it's something that is much needed, especially on, on the, the technical piece, because as we've seen at the federal level, mostly um, we've seen some privacy and tech stuff come out like, like California with CCPA Obviously, the international realm with uh, GDPR and <laughs> uh, yeah, I can see you shaking your head on that one. Uh, I, I think that may be Pandora's box for this conversation. <laughs> but and we've seen bits and pieces of that trying to be introduced as a standard here in the, the U.S. I mean, obviously, CCPA is one of those. There's been some others that have happened that we've got Ohio that has their privacy law. Um, there's some good things about it, some bad things, but even, you know, at the federal level, we've got the earn it act. That's a huge fight on and against encryption. Um, and Lindsay and I talked about that and would be that actual conversation is going to be coming out probably in a, a week or two, but we've got all these really bad. And in my opinion, bad pieces of legislation at the federal level when it comes to privacy. Obviously, first, and I'll admit, you know, we've going back to 9-11 with the FISA uh, Act and, and uh, the 703 and the Patriot Act. And then since then, I mean, here in the last couple of days, we've had news ex excerpts about the re-up of FISA and whether or not Trump's going to veto it. But I mean, these, these privacy issues as it relates to tech aren't necessarily new, correct? 
No, these these issues as it relates to technology. I mean, like you said, FISA courts. That's that's pretty old stuff. Patriot Act's very old, and it's been around for a long time. And and the the, the primary issue that ends up happening here is that they're only going to become increasingly prevalent because the reality is is that a lot of Americans are increasingly uh, increasingly utilizing these technologies to integrate it into their daily lives, whether that's smart technologies or uh, just you know utilizing these platforms like Facebook and Twitter or Google, um, by utilizing all these technologies and having so much integration of technology into your daily life, it's really starting to push these issues that we've had for a while to the forefront of the conversation when it comes to technology policy. So there's definitely a lot of discussions that need to be had about how do we go and address these privacy questions that are being raised. Yeah. And just a quick correction, it's 702. I knew it was close. It's it's section 702. But anyway, just wanted for the record, wanted to, to correct myself there. But yeah, I mean, yeah, these issues of government surveillance of U.S. persons and, and the issues that we have seen through, you know, even the 2016 election are a direct result of those bad policies. And, and then the fact that we're, in one hand, we've got Trump that is been supportive of it. I mean, the last time it was reauthorized, he was supportive of it and signed it. Now that it's up for another reauthorization, now, you know, because it is coming to election time and they keep that whole, hey, look at what the Democrats did to me, you know, so it's always a good time to, to remind folks about the, the issues. Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and all those issues that were brought up about these government surveillance programs, which are a direct, in my opinion, violation of the Fourth Amendment. No, absolutely. I think that you're you're hundred percent right there that these 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 uh these technologies, these surveillance programs that the state is utilizing, um it's interesting, you know, for Trump because like you said, it's what well, he's reauthorized it before and now because of everything that's come to light and it being an election season, it's certainly put a different kind of spin for him. And there's, there's certainly reasoning as to why he'd want to go and do that. But yeah, it, it, like, like I said before, these issues aren't new. Uh, they've been existing for a long time. And it, it is kind of amazing because I feel like they've only gotten heightened in some respect during coronavirus because we're seeing so many reactionary policies getting taken place. And America, like for the most part, has really prided itself on not trying to import these uh, surveillance state authoritarian ideas uh, that you see being implemented in other places around the world, like China, for example, or Poland, even there's a great story out of Poland. It's just, just crazy during coronavirus of what they were doing there. And it's like, you know, we, we've for the most part, not really gone down that route, but then, you know, slowly and surely you're seeing during coronavirus because they're just trying to go and get a grip of it somehow, some way they're leveraging these technologies uh, sometimes in potentially you know detrimental ways to our fundamental rights. And when that happens, you've got to be able to have something that can go and pump the brakes and be like, well, wait a second, have we really gone through this process of getting public buy-in for the government doing this? Because when technology is expanding at an exponential rate and our ability to understand it and regulate it is only going to go and uh, move at a more logarithmic and slower pace, there's going to be this gap there, which means that well, from a commercial standpoint, that's excellent. It means that we get all these great innovations and ideas that get fostered. It also means that the government has like this time period where it gets access to really powerful tools without much oversight at all. And we usually don't find out about it until much later. 
And that that's usually pretty problematic. Yep. And especially when it's done outside of the purview of the uh, checks and balances that were set to (laughs) keep the government in in, in control on these things. So, and it it is very problematic. And then when you get folks like Zuckerberg and the CEO of Alphabet, and I can't remember the, the gentleman's name off the top of my head, and other big tech CEOs, being called on the carpet, so to speak, in front of Congress and where there's a couple that I would say that are, you know, somewhat are, are qualified to talk about tech and, and the issues around tech. And it's not just cybersecurity, it's the privacy as well. Oh, then, you know, on one hand, we're going to lambast you on public television for improper use, quote unquote, of the data that in most time, People have given up freely <laughs> to, you know, in that famous quote of, if you didn't pay for the service, then you are the product. In <laughs> uh, those, you know, massive uh, legalese in user license agreements that we've all just clicked through. But that is a, it's contract between two private folks, either individuals or businesses, just like any other, you know, companies have been, collecting data on us as consumers for years and years and years. Now, the big difference is now we've got machine learning and I hate to use the word artificial intelligence, but you know, the the AI type of um, systems out there that can make correlations and do generate some really powerful types of uh, new data sets that can either be good or be used for some really good purposes or they can be used for some really bad purposes. But to finish that thought is that now they are wanting, you know, Congress is wanting these same people that they're lambasting and scolding to write the policies. Yeah, they, they really do kind of face like a catch-22 dilemma there because they get they get all kinds of heart for going and having this astronomical treasure trove of data on people. Uh, but at the same time, the government's like, well, we need, especially now in light of everything, they're like, we need this kind of data so that we can be informed and make, you know, data-driven decisions. And it's like, <laughs> well, you can't go and bake your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got to have some kind of compromise there. And I think, especially when it comes to people, I, I'm certainly been guilty of just going and checking the, the box, so to say, on these end-user agreements because I'm perfectly okay with that voluntary association with uh, be it Amazon or Facebook or Google because these are free services. Um, and I think that, I, I don't know. I think that this is the part of the GDPR that you mentioned before. That's such a horrible piece of, of paper uh, <laughs> that kind of got exported to the United States was it kind of gave people this false sense of like having more rights to, to data than perhaps they, they do or, or they're under the assumption that there are no you know, rules in place in the United States to protect their, their data. And that's quite the contrary. There's plenty of federal law that goes and protects that sensitive information that actually matters when you're looking at malicious actors wanting to go and do physical harm to people. My data on an individual level is worthless, right? I'm lucky if I get, I think the average is about one ten thousandth of a cent for my data. Mm-hmm. It costs me more to maintain it and be my own data broker than to go and just have Facebook collected on their own, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the value comes when you can go and get aggregate sums of, of people going and doing things, right? So this mm-hmm. is, like you said before, been used to go and develop all kinds of cool things, whether, and that's across a variety of industries. It's been used for technology. It's been used in the consumer staple goods industries. So there's a lot of great benefits that come out of here, but 
they, they really do face this really difficult uh, time when they have to go and try to somehow protect data while also give data uh, and figure out how to go and accommodate everybody's needs there. It's, I, I'm certainly not envious of the position that, that groups like Facebook and Twitter and Google have to face. No, and not to say that governments, just like organizations, companies, are groups of people, yeah. and they tend to sway with the collective of, of those sure. you know, individuals that, that make up that organization. And so decisions that are made by one person may not, I mean, they could have astronomical effects or may not, but I think at least the intent of most organizations, and I'm not naive, are, are not to hurt people. I mean, I think they, they, people get in, generally get into business because they want to help people. They want to provide a good or service to their you know, communities or, you know, the, the overall market. That's not inherently evil. Now, if we see things like Cambridge Analytica, where there's some potentially, you know, shady stuff going on or you know, something like that. Yeah, okay. But I don't think you have to do the shotgun effect. I know government is horrible for taking the shotgun approach. I've seen it. When I was working with the state of Indiana inside Anytime somebody screwed up, shotgun approach. It would be like, why can't you just be more tactical? I mean, as in the state police, I mean, we have a SWAT team. You know, we it's a tactics. Why can't we just be tactical in our response to somebody doing something bad instead of you know again taking that shotgun approach? Yeah, I, I think that there's a I think that there's a fair discussion to be had here, and that there's there's a couple of nuances, right? It's like Okay, so Cambridge Analytica happens, and there's a method of holding somebody accountable for doing that. The Equifax data breach occurs, right? That's massive, unlike any scale that we've ever really had before. They can be held accountable for doing that. But when the USPS goes and has it self-hacked, and it loses millions of records of people that are sensitive information, they Mm -hmm. can't really be held accountable to the same kind of effect. And, you know, uh, I think that that's where tech companies kind of are at a loss because it's like we're doing the best that we can. And I know you mentioned you have the background in cybersecurity. It's like, you, you know, as well as anybody else, that battle to go and try to keep things secure as possible is ongoing all the time. Yep. Nothing is ever truly secure. And a lot of companies are, you know, they're certainly trying their best to go and, and implement strategies to go and prevent that. But it's an ongoing battle. And that's, that's a really hard place to be in when you've got, you know, malicious people constantly trying to go and attack your, your security and come up with new and innovative ways to go and get into it as well. Yeah. They only have to get it right once and we have to get it right every single second of the day. And, you know, it's somebody makes a simple mistake clicking on a link that they shouldn't have. And they've Mm -hmm. now exposed potentially a ton of sensitive information. Again, that's not malicious. Now there are some malicious insiders and uh, we just, we have those, but it's actually the Verizon data breach incident report DBIR just came out last week. And, and they actually in the report said that the internal threats actually uh, that has been kind of prompted up probably by the cybersecurity industry. is actually not as, I mean, there's, it's not, really substantive of a argument or a thing. It is outside actors that 
most organizations have have to worry about, which I thought was interesting because I've heard that for years and years. Well, in, the internal threat, the internal threat. And I'm like, okay, now there's over, you know, because they've been doing this report for, oh God, 10 plus years, it, easy. Yeah. Uh, and they said the data is just not looking like it's there to support kind of some of those claims. But anyway, it's, it is a very, these companies are in a vicarious situation where they are damned if they do, damned if they don't. And that's where I think personal responsibility comes into place in education and kind of where I want this, you know, even going back to the original format, where I wanted this show to, to come out is help educate people to make better decisions and understand you giving your data to Facebook isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, or Amazon. I mean, I, I listened to Jason Stapleton. I haven't in the last little bit, but I've been a longtime listener of Jason Stapleton. And I mean, there's some, and he's always said, it's like the marketing piece that I can get something so tailored to me that I may not known that has existed. That's pretty cool. Like that, you know, <laughs> I, I want things that are tailored to my interests. And big data is how that happens. Or at least in, in the machine learning. So no, the systems get to know our shopping habits. And the fact that I'm getting stuff specifically tailored to me isn't a bad thing. That's actually, I think that's a pretty good thing for, you know, small businesses or medium-sized businesses that are trying to reach people just like myself. Oh, absolutely. I think you're 100% right. Like I said before, um, that's why I'm perfectly okay with having these uh, voluntary exchanges of my data with these different companies. It's in part because I like the fact that even I actually just did it a couple of days ago. I wanted to go and get myself a, a new power bank, but you know, Amazon goes and knows that and they can go and actually link me up with a couple of great deals. Right. So it's this great process by which you can go and pair the buyer and the seller together. And then they both get it at a mutually beneficial price point. And it's, it's really good, but you know, again, there's, there's just a certain level of unease that comes with that. I can understand why, but I mean, it's just virtue signaling, I think, in, in some ways, because if you were truly concerned about your privacy, there's, there's some really easy things that you could do to facilitate going and basically, you know, keep, keeping yourself out of the, the, the grasp of these kinds of, you know, companies that want to go and do that, right? But people, like I said, I think it's just more of a virtue signaling thing than anything else right now. So, yeah. Yeah. And it- from a cybersecurity standpoint, we've got VPNs. You can use Tor browsers that aren't collecting mm-hmm. that data. It's private nodes, exit nodes, and probably the, the technology behind that is probably a little bit too geeky for, for most. But there are ways to keep yourself anonymous online if you wanted to, if you're really concerned about it. Oh, yeah. But I, I don't know. And again, it may be anecdotal here, but I... I just don't think the average person really cares about it. I mean, they, I, I just, I, I don't think they do. Folks like you and I, we live in it, we, we work in it, and we do care about it. But I think, like, if you go ask my wife, I mean, if it's not one of those issues where I just constantly hounds, I don't think she cares. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I think most people are, are they just don't realize that it's even a thing anyway until it becomes something that personally affects them for whatever reason. So more often than not, you're just going about your life and you're, you're a huge beneficiary of having this, this metadata available to you. So, you know, like we've discussed, it's, it's just, it's really powerful technology that's there. 
And when it's being used in a commercial setting, it, the, the benefits there are endless as to how it goes and you know, helps you and I and, and your wife and, and all these people across the country and the world, frankly, and being able to get beneficial exchanges. It's when you go and you take these powerful technologies and this big data and you start transferring it to how government wants to go and utilize it that you start seeing some issues there. And, and that's really uh, where, our, where my focus ends up being because I'll, I'll talk to uh, legislators or stakeholders and they'll, and they'll bring up this point exactly. They're like, well, you know, they're doing this in the, in the private sector. I'm like, the end point of the end goal of, of a private sector driven action here is not to go and surveil you. It's for completely non-nefarious purposes. On average, I, I do agree with your your uh, your statement where it's like, I think that most companies aren't out there to hurt you because if they were, they probably wouldn't be in business for too long. So whereas the government, they can keep going on in perpetuity and continue to go and utilize this kind of stuff in a dangerous fashion. Yeah, it's there's not a whole lot of recourse that an individual has against the government when they screw up. No, not it, by any stretch. Yeah, I know here in Indiana, there's a $300,000 cap on a tort claim for an individual $300,000 it's not a in the grand scheme of things in their budget in the state of Indiana budget which is you know billions of dollars it's yeah. not a huge huge thing and then maybe the person gets a reprimand maybe not has to be super egregious for them to get fired because uh, it's very hard to get rid of government employees oh yeah especially at the federal level but if that was a business, a private company that does it, you're Gone. talking, they're, they're out of business. Uh, and, Liability. And it, yeah. Oof. Yeah. So it just, it, it is definitely, you know, the government has put that way to, to protect themselves. I mean, to protect their power. So it, it is, to me, I'd rather much have a business screw up than have the government screw up. At least I have some, a, a lot more recourse with, another private person or institution than I do the, the state or federal government. Yeah, hundred percent agree with that. <laughs> uh, that's probably one of my go-to lines. I'm like, I'd, I'd rather have it with a company any day because I have that pathway open to me, but the government, not so much. Totally. <laughs> and, and especially if it's a federal agency, good luck. I mean, oh, yeah, you'll, you'll be hung up forever. <laughs> yeah. The same, you know, administrative process that's being administered by the, the, uh, agency that you're going against. Yeah. Good luck getting a, f you know, fair, uh, shake at it. Uh, <laughs> cause they're not going to admit that they did wrong. I mean, why would they? No, rarely. Right. It's usually years and years and years after the fact that we ever go and find out about any of the stuff that's gone seriously wrong. Right. Like that's your nine 11 commission. We don't know about just how bad some of the things that we did during that time period were until you know, well over a decade after the fact, right? And that's kind of sad. It shouldn't have to take that long for us to have like some form of feedback loop to understand the, the cost of the decisions that we're making it from a policy point uh, from the state or federal government. Yeah. And which is why I personally, it's like, I don't want more of that. And when people, at least in my opinion, or especially with this coronavirus pandemic that we're seeing, they want more and more of the government to do stuff. And I'm like, why? You complain about the BMV. The BMV can't get your license right. <laughs> why do you think they're going to get this thing right? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it certainly goes and uh, baffles me. Like, 
disasters happen. People look to the government. Government fails, not surprisingly so. And then people are like, oh, well, it was just that we didn't throw enough money at it or whatever excuse that you want to come up with. And it's just like, I don't understand why you keep wanting to go and look at this because the private sector increasingly has taken on a larger role in responding to a lot of these disasters. And they've done some really cool stuff, right? So Hurricane Maria happens. It's not, you know, the AT&T and Google, they didn't want to deal with the FAA. So they just got special permission from the FCC to go and put up their drones over, Mm -hmm. you know, the island of Puerto Rico. They were like, I don't want to go and wait for all this crap. So they go and they put out this interagency competition. And in the meantime, people are getting, you know, taken care of. And this, this, there's this ability to facilitate a recovery response a lot faster uh, than otherwise would have happened because the infrastructure in the island was completely decimated. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, like I said, it, it's, it's amazing that I keep seeing people go and turn back to government when there's alternatives that are there. If they just open their eyes and see that they've been there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just don't get it. I just, every time I hear people calling for the government to do more and more, I'm like, they can't do what they do now. And that's, you know, I, I was a huge opponent against the, the new cybersecurity agency, CISA. I did absolutely mm-hmm. huge opponent to it. Uh, even, oh, yeah. I just, it's like they can't even secure their own systems. Even before they were CISA. And they were still, their mission was protecting the federal government networks. OPM happened. You had, I mean, you've, you've had other issues. I mean, even into the, the 2016 election, there were, and this is public knowledge, the now Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia openly accused DHS of trying to penetrate their networks without permission. I mean, they're all these things that they weren't doing well. The GOA, the Government Office of Accountability, had a report on DHS and their cybersecurity mission. And of like 42, 43 major roles and responsibilities through uh, legislation, they were doing like two of them somewhat well. And the rest of it, they were failing. But people were calling, we need CISA to do more. We need DHS Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, why? They can't even keep their own house in order, let alone be have any sort of you know, faith or credibility to be telling private industry how to be doing cybersecurity. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Uh, I know here in Utah, we've certainly had that conversation about how do you deal with you know, the, the liability that comes with the cybersecurity because every, every single incident the average amount of damage that's done is somewhere around a hundred thousand plus dollars is usually the average that it comes out to, which is probably a little bit on the low side. And it's like, you, how do you go and determine at what point do you waive liability out of being like a good faith actor mm-hmm. is what they like to go and talk about. And it's like, well, if we're going to go down this kind of route, what, what kind of you know standard are we going to be using? Are we going to be using, you know, from NHTSA, uh, their their cybersecurity framework. If so, what version of the of it are we going to be talking about? And the issue there, when it comes to trying to figure out like how how what's the best method of securitizing your data, is that frankly it's an ever going process, right? Like how we understand cybersecurity today is vastly different than how we even understand it five years ago mm-hmm. or ten years ago. Yep. Uh, the language is constantly changing. The how people are securitizing the data, the kinds of methods of encryption. All that is is drastically different and always changing. So 
I, I really do find it to be really hard to go and sit there and be like, well, we need them to do more and we need a clearly defined set of standards. I'm like, I don't understand how you can go and find one set of standards that's going to cover all kinds of businesses from cybersecurity threats because there's there probably isn't to my knowledge. And, and there isn't because what works for one organization will not work for another because it, it it's so sensitive to the make, model, number, patching versions, all of that plays into account and what you can do to protect. And you can't, even if you tried to say, okay, everybody use this, you know, version, all of this version of Windows or Mac or whatever, you're still going to have enough variables that the security controls that you put around there are not going to be the same. And it yeah. just does not scale. And yeah, I've seen it in a number of organizations that are quote unquote similar, have the same, you know, type of issues still not able to to tackle that issue. And again, it's not something that you're ever going to win at. It's just not a, okay, we've we've done X, Y, and Z, so we're done. And that changes every day. Soon as, you know, hey, oh, you know, Google has come out with this new app or so-and-so new, you know, company has this new SaaS or, you know, PaaS solution using different technologies, different coders to develop it. You just, which is good for me as uh, and what I do on the day job because I mean job security, job security. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but even then, the what people agree on on what should be standards is not there. People fight constantly. I've been in some of those conversations or arguments on. Well, do we do AES two fifty six or do we do Shaw, you know five twelve or you know whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And people can't agree on that stuff, let alone do a national standard. And NIST has done a, a decent job of trying to get some out. But the problem with NIST is most of their standards are 400 plus pages long. And they are, even for a small organization with few IT experts, they're not able to do even a, a tenth of those controls. Now, you try to scale that up to, large organization it's not it just doesn't happen no no it really it really doesn't and and at the end of the day too even by their own admission it's it's not even like they're trying to set standards with like some of the nits and stuff they're just literally setting up guidelines as to how you should go and respond to an incident if it happens uh, mm-hmm. and to follow like certain kinds of protocol right yeah and you know again like you said that's that's an ever-changing kind of conversation that's happening right now and, and what makes it scary is that, like, again, a lot of people are not bad actors. I think that they try to do their best to go and securitize their data. But I think that there's also a risk that some companies take where there's a, or institutions take where it's like there's a certain level of complacency. They think, oh, well, we have the best of the best and we're fine. Mm-hmm. We're not even online server. We're offline server. We're <laughs> totally, we're totally okay from not having Air any kind of cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah. Cause we're not connected to the cloud. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Like, you think that just because you're on an offline server that you're somehow protected from a from a data incident? Like by no stretch is that even remotely the case. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> it's just crazy to me. Yep. All right. I think you know, kind of at a point. I think we could pivot to this Privacy Protection Act project that you, the proposal that you guys have going on. Because I think we've you know over the last 
30, 40 minutes that we've been chatting here really, I think, framed out the issue. Uh, and yeah. I, I think we, I, I wanted to, to do that to really make sure we had a good setup for what this proposal that you guys are, are working on and what it is and how it's going to solve the, the, the multitude of issues that we've talked about and, and hopefully many more. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it certainly is a, is a good proposal. It, it, the goal there is that it's hopefully a springboard to go and have a good conversation about how we can go and have effective policy. Kind of like what I said at the top of the show, a lot of the issue is right now is that you get government utilizing a lot of powerful technologies with no kind of conversation with the public to establish buy-in from them or even any kinds of checks and balances to see if this is even something that's constitutionally allowable. And what we had been working on at the Libertas Institute uh, even for us, like last session, we technically had about like three or four different bills that were looking at different kinds of privacy questions because the government has the ability to go and tap into a lot of really powerful technologies. And again, it's not for bad reasons. Like they want to go and solve crime. And I can totally understand that, you know, solve cold cases and get justice. Like there's nothing wrong with this in principle, but it's the methodology that gets put in where I start having concerns because, you know, one kind of bill was looking at how law enforcement have been using genealogical databases to go and get warrants to tap into those to go and help them solve cold cases. Sounds, you know, nice at, at you know, first glance because, well, again, you want to go and solve cold cases to get justice for families that are looking for it. But the problem is, is where's your due process there? There's a whole host of questions. It's, it's also beyond the intended use of the technology that mm-hmm. was being put there to begin with. People put themselves in genealogical databases, not because they wanted to be tracked by law enforcement, but because they wanted to go and find out more about their family history and learn a little bit more about themselves. Maybe they're pre-exposed to something. You know, you see this ever increasingly right now in the space of looking at your cell phone and security, right? I have a new iPhone. It's unlockable with facial recognition technology. It's unlockable with a fingerprint, and it's also unlockable with an alphanumeric passcode. But they go and they tout these security features as an added plus, but when you're potentially in trouble with the law, it's actually a detriment to you because, you know, law enforcement right now, uh, while you have protections for alphanumeric passcodes, they can go and force you to unlock your phone via fingerprint, facial recognition, iris, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's some really legitimate questions, DNA, and also there was this other thing which really brought this Privacy Protection Act proposal together was there was this company in Utah called Banjo. Okay. I'm not sure if you've heard of them before. No. So they are a surveillance company that's located out of Park City in Utah. And they had a sole source contract with the state of Utah to go and tap into the public and private surveillance of the state of Utah, uh, including but not limited to CCTV, uh, their uh, 911 phone lines, any private surveillance that the state may have had that we don't necessarily know about, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole point, this was pushed through the attorney general's office at Utah. And the whole purpose of this was to go and help law enforcement by identifying what the company called anomalies to go and help them respond to an incident faster. And the guy who's the CEO of this company, his name is Damian Patton. Uh, he claims all kinds of interesting things about what his company is able to do with this technology. Uh, he claimed that they were able to identify the Las Vegas shooter, I believe, before authorities could, although it didn't really stop the end result there. But if you go to try to look at any of it up, like all it talks about mostly are simulation. And that's, that's a very interesting reality. But so company, it comes to light that the CEO, Damian Patton, 
had a former past as a member of the KKK, that he was a driver in a drive-by shooting at a synagogue. And uh, in his you know, testimony in court that it was because the Jews and the blacks were overrunning the country and they needed to restore white America. And this is in his uh, testimony to the courts at 17 years old. You know, obviously since then he's changed. He's renounced his ways of being a former member of the KKK. But it obviously raised a lot of questions because you have this guy who is essentially a former neo-Nazi that had access to surveillance yep. of, of citizens. And I don't personally care that he was a former Nazi. I had problems with the technology itself mm-hmm. because this is utilizing, you know, utilizing surveillance, uh, you know, assets in order to go and look at things. And we have no clue about how they're managing that data. Uh, what's their protocol? Who has access to it? What's the security standards that they're following? None of that was really ever so clear. And it was, it was really Orwellian. And it was a little surprising that our state, uh, which is relatively conservative, was okay with having this kind of a relationship with the company. So when all this broke to light, uh, we decided it didn't make sense to go and have four different, four separate kind of privacy angles because they all ultimately encompass this concept of surveillance and government use of technology inappropriately with no public buy-in whatsoever. And this act is the first step in trying to rectify that. So we call for establishing a data privacy officer that's separate from an existing one within the Department of Technology. Uh, His role is more technical in terms of what he's looking at, whereas the one that we're looking at tries to address the civil liberties aspects. We're also going to have a independent like board of people that would go and review the technologies that might the, the state might want to contemplate uh, contemplate using and look at potential civil liberty concerns as well as any kind of bias or anything like that that might exist within those kinds of products to go and address it again the, the, the point that we're trying to go and do is that right now it's gone on way too long where government has had unfettered ability to go and utilize these really powerful technologies and the problem is that when they're wrong the costs are very high mm-hmm No, absolutely. The costs are extremely high. And I can tell you from having done a survey of pretty much every state in in the union, not a lot of the um, tribal or, um, you know, like Puerto Rico or anything like that, but a lot of states are grasping from a technology, just even from a, a basic IT standpoint of what to do. You know, let alone throwing on the cyber and privacy issues on, on top of it. Um, and, and, you know, having looked through the, the proposal and, and, and the first thing that came is like, how can I get this <laughs> over to some of my legislature folks, uh, here in Indiana? Cause I think this is, it's, you know, it, it, without getting and tearing up in the weeds or anything like that to make it fit in Indiana. But I think in principle, this is what a lot of states, if not every state needs, plus the federal government. Uh, needs to have these type of things, even though I mentioned the Earn It Act uh, earlier, where they're they're trying to set up something somewhere for the the encryption standpoint, which that's a, that's probably a whole nother show just talking about the piece of crap that legislation is to to put it nicely. But I mean, I I think the an independent agency or board that can hold the the state you know, to task when they're doing something wrong on these issues is needed. Something that is very low footprint, so it's not costing taxpayers any more money than it needs to happen. Because I'm also <laughs> for, you know, not expanding 
the state's budget. But I think there's enough of a a template and some, at least here in Indiana, I don't know about Utah and other states, for this type of board to exist. Yeah, that that was the that was the general idea of how we were looking at it, and 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 it's still early in the process, so I'm sure there'll be some you know changes here and there that we'll go through. But the, at, at base principle, like I said, what we wanted to aim to accomplish was right now there is no conversation that's happening; they're just doing it, and then something happens, and it's like, oh yeah, of course we've been doing this, and you know nothing's gone wrong till now, but you didn't have the buy-in mm-hmm. uh, of of your constituents, the people that you're charged to protect. You are betraying them in some senses by not trusting them with what you want to do. And if you have that conversation, we can go and set up a way, hopefully, where, you know, maybe you can go and utilize some of this stuff under a different kind of guideline. Because the, the part of the issue is, is that too, is that going back to what I was talking about earlier in the show, if you have this issue where technology is going by a lot quicker in its development than our ability to understand it, uh, it kind of goes and defeats some of the safeguards that we have traditionally there to go in and do that, right? So with like a warrant, which we have a third-party doctrine law that covers requiring a warrant before getting any, any kind of third-party data on an individual requiring notification, that's also first in the nation and it's, it's great, but not many people do that. And when you don't have some kind of law like that or something similar to what we're trying to do here, uh, and the judge doesn't understand the technology, like you can have a cop going and applying to go and literally just tap an entire genealogical database on a really flimsy and poorly written warrant saying, well, you know, statistically speaking, we think that the guy is this, 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 therefore give us access to this genealogical database. And uh, yeah, the court will go and grant the warrant. And there might be a genealogical company that's willing to do that. And that did happen in Florida. And to me, that's, that's not acceptable. That's not why we we had this technology so what do you say to and i've heard this a a ton of times and it just makes my skin crawl well if you don't have anything to hide you shouldn't have anything to worry about and that's kind of a response that i get when we talk from to to average folks about these type of issues when it comes to government and surveillance and and whatnot No, absolutely. We, it was actually, uh, somebody did a very sloppy poll in the Salt Lake Tribune asking that exact question, you know, again, very poor poll, but it was like, oh yeah, no, like most people don't care if they're surveilled, uh, you know, and have, uh, this kind of stuff happening or having the facial recognition done. And I'm like, number one, you, you phrased the whole thing bad. So we'll, we'll ignore that. But the issue isn't whether or not you're, you have anything to hide. It's about why are you being placed in this position where you don't have any kind of say in that process at all. Again, like that's kind of part of the reason why we go through due process is that you're not just supposed to have everything already on display or whatever. Like there's supposed to be some separation between yourself and the state that's trying to push for a conviction. And there's a whole bunch of interesting literature talking about how that, that single determination of trying to push for convictions influences the way that the system itself plays out. Uh, enough as is to go and talk about why we should maybe pause a little bit before just having this kind of thing happen. So to me, I, I just say, look, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to hide, but I'm certainly not going to go and just give it up, you know, willingly to them. If they, if they have, if they go through their process and their means, by all means, I'm more than happy to go and provide what is legally obligated of me. But it's not my job to sit there and you know just immediately have to go and pass over anything and everything. And I, I 
the way that I phrase it, it's not my job and it's not a private institution's job to make the government's life easy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that's how I see some of this happening is they just they want it easy. They and they don't want to have yeah. to work for it. And I'm, I'm sorry, that is the protection at the simplest core of the Fourth Amendment is to make it a very high bar for the government to collect data on you. Yeah, and, and I, I've literally said that exact argument to a chief of police before, and he wasn't too thrilled when he said that. <laughs> uh, but I was like, it's not our job to make it easy for you. Like, I'm sorry. But what they, what I also don't like, our standard law enforcement argument that they love to come at us with is, well, you know, we got to be able to go and force you to unlock your phone because you could be a, you know, child pornography person. And you could have child porn on your phone. I'm like, well, you'll get that one way or another if you're patient enough. No phone's unhackable because they like saying that phones are unhackable. I'm like, that's a lie. Yeah. I was like, it's just a matter of time and resources. But, you know, to me, what I hate is that they want to go and put this, this level of a label on a crime that just is so heinous because they know that it draws out a visceral response yep. out of people. And I'm like, but you're fundamentally going and degrading somebody as a citizen by slapping a nasty tag on them. And if our justice system is innocent until proven guilty, it shouldn't matter what the crime is. You should have to have a uniform process for doing that. Are you talking about an active kidnapping? Maybe I can go and, and, and have some giving ground there because that's a, you know, maybe that's an exigency kind of clause, but yeah. you know, for this other kind of stuff, it's going to go and sort itself out, you know, and it's not supposed to be easy for you guys to do your job. I respect what, what law enforcement does. I, I, I appreciate that they keep us safe, but it's not supposed to be an easy job. Oh, and, and I, that's personally an internal conflict that I have, being a former law enforcement officer doing cyber crimes. And so I, I, I get both sides. Cops want to be cops. They want to solve crimes, at least. And again, inherently, I think 90% plus cops are good. We have yeah. bad apples. We, yeah, there, there are bad apples there. And uh, we examples even here recently that we won't get to on this show, but it, the job is supposed to be difficult. You don't go into that line of work because you think it's going to be easy. You're long shifts running after people. You're dealing with all sorts of weather conditions. It, physically, it's not easy. Mentally, it's not easy. And I, I, I get that we want it. Law enforcement wants to have some things a little bit easier, maybe to make it life, but it's not the job. It's not the role of a police officer or law enforcement in this country to be easy. And yeah. that is really because they are going back to the, the you know founding of this country and, you know, looking at it, the perspective of our founders of, you know, the king to be able to just come into anybody's home to seize any documents to prison people under false circumstances to accuse people under false circumstances, which is basically what we're doing here. You're not outright saying, oh, hey, James, you're a child molester you know, or, or child pornographer. But, you know, if you don't, if you're not cooperating with us, then we're going to, you know, it is somewhat you know, slightly, you know, imply that's what you are because you're not cooperating with law enforcement or government in, in general. Yeah, no, I think, again, you hit the nail on the head there because it's, it's a weird 
duality that they face, right? Because they're also charged with protecting these same people that could be potentially criminals. And it, it really is a, a weird relationship I imagine to have where you have to, you're charged with protecting and serving the citizens that could very well be criminals in some respect or another. But there's just some really unique problems that come up as we've gone and swapped over to the digitization of a lot of these kinds of things, right? You know, if, if you were a suspected criminal and, you know, this was 30, 40 years ago, right? They could, uh, you know, get the search warrant for your house, but they could only go and search stuff that was reasonably within their warrant. And there was, you know, then plain sight doctrine that could go and apply mm -hmm. where they could go and do a second warrant when it's with a phone uh, or any kind of digital evidence that could be on a computer or a genealogical database. There's not necessarily any kind of uh, throttle there that goes and stops it. Everything yep. is, is available to law enforcement. So they, you know, they could go and write the warrant based off of whatever, but when they clone your phone, it's going to have everything on there. And, you know, that's problematic because it's just not the same kind of uh, process that you'd go through. And, you know, it's not, it puts you in a compromising position because you could have gotten brought in on one thing, but then you have drug paraphernalia on your phone. And if you're in a state that's not a fan of, of that, right, all of a sudden you find yourself, say, you know, facing multiple things that you didn't originally even intend to when you had this whole thing kick off. Yep. And if you apply the same legal logic as the house to the phone, and I know exactly where you're going because we've had this conversation in criminal law going through the, the academy, is, yeah, you if you have a warrant that says you can go into the bathroom and look at their medicine drawer, mm -hmm. that's all you can do. I mean, if you're, I mean, it, those warrants are prescriptive to what you, an officer can and cannot do. But let's apply that to how that the warrant is just kind of put this in terms that uh, folks can understand is if they go after, because they've seen you on Facebook for whatever reasons, you know, whether it's child porn or some sort of other crime. Now, when they write the warrant and trust me, I know this uh, personal experience that it's not just for Facebook's app, it's for Google, it's for your pictures, it's for your text messages, it's for every single application, even though logically on the phone, they are segmented out very similar to how you could segment out a house. But the legal system, when it comes to the, the forensics, digital forensics piece, doesn't make that, we haven't gotten to that challenge yet. I think it will take a challenge that goes up to the Supreme Court to say, nope, you said, you know, it's Facebook and that's where the data you think is at. That's all you're limited to. Well, and, and, the, and, the, and this kind of goes into the other aspect of the conversation, shifting from 4A to 5A questions, because, okay, again, you can't, like, if, if I have no way, if they force me because I have my new iPhone that can do facial recognition to unlock my phone, and that's, that's like a known thing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm giving over everything. Some of it could be self-incriminating to myself. And the reality is that if people on average are increasingly digitizing their lives, I view my phone, and I saw this in, a, in an opinion of a court when looking at one of these cases for specifically looking at biometric locks, was they viewed the phone as an extension of your mind. You know, with alphanumeric codes, uh, the Supreme Court in Carpenter kind of ruled pretty clearly on this, that you cannot go and force somebody to go and reveal an alphanumeric passcode. But for some reason, they didn't clarify on the biometric lock side and that, which is a little unfortunate, but it kind of put us in this weird bind. 
uh, because it doesn't change the concept that at the end of the day, it is a lock that's being used. It's just that the methodology of triggering the key, so to say, is different. Mm -hmm. And why should there be one standard for one methodology versus one standard for another methodology is beyond me. It, It really does create some really really interesting dynamics and some really interesting questions that still have to be answered because the courts, they're, they're unclear on this. And I think part of that's due to not necessarily understanding the, the breadth of the technology itself, which means that what, what path of recourse do you possibly have to do there? Um, so this kind of hopefully, this proposal will hopefully kind of uh, be able to draw out some of that a little bit more to help in that aspect is, is I think something that could be useful. Nice. Well, we are past an hour here. I wanted, is there, if you've got a few more minutes, I continue the conversation a little bit yeah, sure. further. If not, I want to be respectful of your time because I, I, I think uh, we, what I want to get to, what do you think are the, some of the, the challenges uh, that we haven't talked about that you guys are going to face in the Utah State Legislature with this proposal? Oh, Boy, I cannot wait to get into the room to talk to the AG's office and law enforcement. That's not going to be fun. <laughs> um, they, they, they really did not like uh, a lot of our bills when they were individual. But that being said, there actually is. I'm also very excited about this because of the situation that Utah faced that did provide this unique opportunity to get everybody to the table to talk about it. And there's bipartisan interest in trying to see something get done here. So I think that um, the primary issue might be like hammering out what those specifics might look like in terms of how are we going to go and have this committee go and review things and what are the implications of that and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to the conversation because like I said, I know that there's, there's definitely an appetite for it. So I think that we'll be able to get something done, something out hopefully in this upcoming session. And uh, kind of like what you expressed before, if we're able to get that done, I'd love to go and bring it to Indiana in some form or another. I'd love to go and bring it to these other states because, and because it's just something that needs to happen uh, in some in some capacity. Well, and I, I've had this conversation with other state officials at the time, or it, when I've talked to them, you know, even on the show, even you know former state officials tends to be a little bit easier to get one. You know, after one state goes through this process, yeah. that to to then get other states to take up this issue, the same and the one of the last big examples of this, and I'm I'm pretty proud of this. So New York passed their financial cybersecurity uh, law that said you know, basically financial institutions had to have this certain level of cybersecurity in their you know networks. And at the time, I was still with the state. And I had a state rep for my area who I'm, I'm a little bit sad that she didn't run for reelection this year, but had a you know, good relationship with her and she went through official channels and I'm like, I, okay, let me give this to my legal liaison, uh, or, you know, legislative liaison to, to do this. Cause I had to go through the government. That's the, the weird thing about an executive employee communicating, you know, officially with the, our legislator. So, but basically it was a very similar bill. Well, New York did it. Thankfully, I was able to get my concerns up to the governor's office to put a next to it. And it did not go anywhere. Um, It would have been hugely detrimental to 
small and mid-sized financial institutions here in Indiana. The big boys already had it. I was like, you know, they already have that stuff. Not only the biggest thing was outside of just the level, but was the time frame. I mean, they wanted to have this thing, and this was early in the session that year, and they were wanting it to go basically in place within like six or eight months after the bill signed. I'm like, there's no way it's going to happen. You're going to have a lot of these financial institutions in a legal liability standpoint because if this gets through and that's going to create a huge potential economic impact. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're hundred percent right. I think because we've talked to other uh, legislators about exporting a lot of our successes, like, like I said earlier on, and that comes with some trepidation because a lot of states certainly like you, like you said, are, are hesitant to want to go and take that leap of faith and be the first state out there to go and do something. And, and that's not like it, it excludes Utah by any stretch of the definition. Like us getting certain things done is certainly challenging in that respect, because if you are on the earlier side of something, there's just always going to be pause. And someone's like, eh, do we really have to do that right now? Uh, what, can, let's see some other people do it first or whatever. Right. And so I, I totally understand that, but I think the, the thing that puts this kind of legislation in a good spot here is that, uh, again, it's, it's not necessarily partisan issue by any stretch of the definition. I think that when these kinds of stories break out, whether it's the Banjo one or it's Clearview AI going and scraping, you know, social media profiles and doing all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. People are just like, whoa, wait a minute, let's go and back up here for a second. So that's the thing that I think makes this hopeful about other states being willing to go and jump on board and hopefully take on some kind of initiative similar to this. Nice. Like I said, I think what you guys have going on is really cool. I think it's very complementary to the cybersecurity issues that states are facing with technology. Um, And as I mentioned at the, the beginning of the show, I think there's a lot of focus on cyber right now because of kind of it's the the sexy thing to talk about you know we all (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, but you know privacy is right there i mean again the reason why we have cybersecurity is to protect that information i mean it is how you do it so i it's it's outside of when there's a breach and that's generally when these privacy issues come up is right after a, a big breach but i think having a real conversation about what are the other issues that are going on. Not to say that this particular thing would be the panacea, the silver bullet that will solve all of our, our issues, but it's a darn good start. I think the, the, the proposal is well written to from where it's at right now. So I think hopefully there isn't any changes that would, you know, kind of strip it of some teeth or, or some of that, I certainly hope not. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, uh, James, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to mention? Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, No, you know, I thank you for having me on. It really has been a great conversation and I'm glad that uh, we were able to go and talk about a wide, wide array of stuff. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like I said, working in this kind of space where you can go and be talking about, uh, you know, the implications of, of one kind of technology and then shifting gears and going to something entirely different. So, I appreciate you having me on to talk about our proposal. I think that it's not the silver bullet, like you said, but I think what it does is it starts the conversation 
and I can go and put it in the right direction. So I'm very excited to be able to work on this and I'm hoping that we're able to go and get something done here and, and touch base and talk about it some more. Yeah. And I, I wish you guys all the luck on this as the session's probably coming up here later. Do you guys start at the end of the year? Our session, our session won't kick off now until January in 2021. Knock on wood, like our sessions run from January to March, 45 days. So we like literally just wrapped up in the nick of time before coronavirus like canceled everything else. So knock on wood, we didn't have to really deal with any fallout of having our, our, our legislative session suspended or anything. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are in a similar time frame. We're actually coming into a biennium session. That's our budget session this year. So it'll run from January to towards the end of April. Uh, so that's it's going to be some interesting things happening here within the state. But I, I, I hope you guys get the success that you're looking for. I think it is definitely much needed and, you know, fighting the right the battles. Um, and I would love to have you and even others from your, your organization on to talk about what happens with this and then, you know, maybe see what we can do to, to get this going here in Indiana. Yeah, no, uh, always happy to come and talk about it. Always happy to help however I can. So by all means, definitely feel free to reach out. All right, James, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you soon.